morning, everyone. I'm Meredith Dancos. I'm the teaching pastor here. And you might hear that my voice sounds a little hoarse. I've been battling a cold. So hopefully we make it all through this, uh, through talking through this whole thing, but we should be fine. So just wanted to put that out there so you know in case I start coughing, that's why. Um, okay, so one thing to know about me, you probably don't know this, but I am a bit of a prankster. So I love a good prank. I think it's, it makes life really fun. But I warn people, and I'm warning all of you, because now you know that I'm a prankster. So you don't want to, you want to be careful, because if you prank me, I have a rule, and it's a general rule of pranksters, that we don't just prank back at the same level, right? You have to take it up a notch. That's, that's how prank works. And so my husband, Steve, uh, when we were dating, decided to put this to the test one time. So he, uh, I, was, I was in college, and he, would, he was graduated, so he'd come and visit on the weekends. And he had driven down. And before he left, he gave me and my two roommates these little wrapped presents. And we thought, wow, how kind. He got us a present for Christmas. And he said, don't open it until I leave, though. And we're like, OK, that's fine. So he leaves. We sit down. We open our present. And it's three giant lumps of coal. And there's a list with it that says, 10 reasons why coal is the best gift at Christmas time. And I thought, all right, well, it's on. It's on. So we planned, my roommates and I planned this. And so we'd go and raid the local supermarkets with like, and get all of their flyers and bring them back. And we stockpiled them for like over a week. And the next weekend that Steve came to visit, he would sleep out in the living room, right? And then, you know, there was the two bedrooms, like this long hallway. And so I convinced him, I said, you know what, why don't you like put your stuff in my room so that way it's not in the way or anything like that because really what I wanted was his car keys so while Steve was sleeping out in the living room I take his car keys my my roommates and I set an alarm got up in the middle of the night went out and stuffed his car full of newspaper and left a sign on the window that said 10 reasons why a car full of newspaper is the best gift at Christmas time he thought very funny very funny so you know I thought okay we're done no then it's finals time and I'm in my bedroom studying, and I hear this electric drill going off. I'm like, who, who is drilling something at like 8 o'clock at night? What is going on? And, you know, we had some weird upstairs neighbors. I thought, like, maybe they're creating, like, a skateboard ramp in the hallway. I don't know. And it was going on for a while. I finally go out to the living room where my roommates were. And I said, did you guys hear, hear that drill? And they're like, I, I thought I heard something. I said, it sounded like it was coming from outside of our door. And then we all started to get a little freaked out. And I was like, well, someone, someone should go check the door. And they're like, you go check the door. I'm like, I'm not checking the door. You check the door. And finally, one of my roommates got brave enough, thank you, Christy, to go check the door. And all we hear is, oh, my goodness, you have to get in here right now. And she slams the door. And so we come running out. And we're like, well, what's, what's behind the door? And she's like, you have to open the door. She's freaking out. Finally, one of us gets brave enough to open the door. And this is what we find. Steve and his friend had driven down and they screwed a giant plywood over our door with a just a little place that you could crawl out of. It was, yeah. And he wrote, he wrote on it, they spray painted on it, who let the dogs out? So he calls later that night because he's thinking, I'm going to be so mad. And I, I play this really cool and I was like, Oh, how's it going? How was your day? And, you know, just acting like nothing's happening. He's trying to, like, drop some hints to see, like, you know, if I'm going to bite. And finally, at the end of the phone call, I said, let's just say this. I will get you back. And the only way you will able to be able to top me is to burn my house down. Hang out. So 
Steve gets really paranoid at this point. And he's thinking, like, she, uh, she's serious. So he was living with his, with his mom at the time, and so he got a lock for his bedroom door because he figured that's the only way that I'm going to get him is in his bedroom. So you know, he had this lock, and, every, and it was months. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm a committed person, right? So it was months and months that I just let this lie. And every time we'd leave, he'd, ma- I, he'd lock the door because, you know, and he'd look at me. I'm like, I, you know, you never know when it's going to come. And uh, so then, you know, after a couple months, he started to let his guard down a little bit. And I arranged this perfectly where I was, I drove down from college and we went to go see a very long movie. We went to see A Beautiful Mind, which is a very long movie. And I bought the tickets ahead of time. And then my roommates and his twin brother, which he thought was like the real low blow to get his twin brother to help me, came. We, they drove down while we were watching the movie because I had stealthily unlocked the door right before we left. And he didn't notice because he stopped being so vigilant after months of, of lying and wait. And so they came in while so his twin brother was able to let them into the apartment. And they came in and they stole everything, including the doorknob. But I have to tell you, stealing everything, that's amateur. Leaving a ransom note for every single item, that is professional, which is what I did. And I thought, this is totally, this, this is in line. You screwed this over my door. And so, but then what happened was it got a little out of hand because Steve, he was upset because I left him his Bible and his passport and that's it, you know. And uh, I said, welcome to the real simple life. Because he always said, I want to live a simple life. I'm like, there you go. That's all you need. And <laughs> he, thought, he thought I was out of line. And I thought he was overreacting. And I thought, it's not that big of a deal that I asked you to wear a dress, go to the ice cream shop, and order a kitty cone. You know? That was one of the ransom notes to get his clothes back. And, uh, <laughs> and so it got, it got like, pretty, pretty tense between us. And I thought, oh, my goodness, we're going to break up over this thing. Like, this is... This has really gotten out of hand. We eventually compromised. This is what we landed on. Steve did have to wear a dress during watching the Super Bowl. So, you know, he was a good sport, and it all worked out in the end. And now we have a 17-year-long truce going on. So we have not pranked each other since then because we've learned we are both committed, and it will get quickly out of hand. So <laughs> that is your fair warning. Don't start a prank war with me, people. I will, I will up it. But here's that's, this is the reality of this is why... This is the problem with wrath when it comes down to it. Because wrath is not uncontrolled anger. Like when we hear wrath, we think someone is just raging and out of control and yelling. But really, wrath is anger that seeks revenge. Anger that seeks to make someone pay. Anger that seeks to make someone hurt. That's really what it is, right? And so that's the problem with revenge is that it builds and it builds and it builds. Jeff Cook describes wrath this way because this is our deadly sin of the week. There's great pain in our world, and our anger alerts us to the fact that it needs fixing. We become angry when we see the weak exploited, those we care about injured, what we value destroyed. The desire for justice is legitimate. In fact, God desires the elimination of evil more than we do. Yet when our longing for justice turns to violence and scorn, we no longer share God's perspective. We move from being part of the solution to becoming part of the problem. See, Jeff Cook says, and I love this, his wrath is nothing more than hitting back. But here's the thing. Any of you had siblings, you know what hitting back is like, right? One of you hit, one of them hits you, and you don't hit them back with equal force, right? You hit back harder. That's what you do. And it creates this ever-escalating cycle of violence and revenge. And so it's not uncontrolled rage. It's, it's anger that seeks retribution. 
It's anger that seeks to make someone pay. And I love how Frederick Buechner describes it. He says this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. It says, to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast for a king. The chief drawback is that, you, that what you are wolfing down is yourself. See, wrath comes often from excessive expectations, where I have an expectation of how I'm supposed to be treated or how you're supposed to act towards me or what's supposed to happen, and it doesn't go my way, and now I am hurt and offended, and I feel like you owe me something. You have to pay. There's payback involved. And it goes beyond the writing of an injustice, right? Because we think, oh, this is unjust, and so something needs to be done about it. But it starts to become about advocating for our own selfish cause. It's about getting back for ourselves. We're not actually looking to make something right. We're looking to make someone pay. And it creates a cycle of revenge because humans aren't very good at justice. We're really good at revenge. And so God has been trying to deal with this human impulse of revenge from the very beginning. So when God gathered the nation of Israel, right, he, 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 delivered, he selected this people and he delivered them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them to this special land and said, you are going to be a people that stands out. You're going to be different from everyone else around you. And in that way, everyone's going to know what I'm like. They're going to look to me. And, and so God gave them what's known as the law. Sometimes it's known as the Mosaic law. And the Ten Commandments are part of that, plus other things. And the Mosaic law was this way that they were supposed to live that really set them apart from every, everyone else. And one part of the Mosaic law what is, is what's known as proportionate retribution. Proportionate retribution. Because there was a saying back then. It was 10 of yours to one of ours, right? That was the mode of operation, 10 of yours to one of ours. So if you hurt someone in my village, what we're going to come do is burn your village down. And then what do you think happened? They burned that village down. These people were like, okay, we're even now. No, then they're like, oh, you want to do that? Then they upped it. You know, and this, was the, this is how things worked back then, 10 of yours to one of ours. And so, so God comes along and establishes the nation of Israel and says, no more of that. No more of this ever-escalating cycle of violence and revenge, we're going to end it. And he gives this, this code of proportionate retribution. And we see it in three parts in the, in the Old Testament, but I'm just going to read the Exodus passage because this is about establishing a law that was just and fair. And it says this in Exodus, but if there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And what they're saying is no more 10 to 1. God changes the ratio and says it's one for one. One for one. What was done here, that's done here. And then it's done. So it doesn't keep escalating. We don't get into this revenge cycle where it just keeps going and going and going. So we went from 10 to 1 to 1 to 1, and that would have stood out at that time. But then Jesus comes along, and he changes the entire game. Jesus says, oh, actually, that's not the way it works anymore. So we've been talking about in this whole series that the seven deadly sins are not just about behavior. They're about what, what's going on in your heart, that they're really a heart issue. And Jesus comes along and shows that wrath is really an issue of the heart. And this is what he says. You have heard it said to the people long ago, that would be the, the people who got the Mosaic law, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And so just, just like in the Old Testament, Jesus' time, just like now, murder is like the ultimate sin, right? Like taking the life of another person is a big deal. It's the sixth commandment, right? You're not supposed to murder. And, and so it's a big deal, and you would be subject to judgment back then and now. Like it's not something that, that is looked upon lightly. But Jesus comes along and says, oh, I mean, you know not to murder each other, but really if you are angry, if you have anger in your heart towards another person, you are subject to the same judgment. He's saying essentially if you are harboring anger in your heart, it is like murdering people in your heart. He, he puts them at the same level. And then he says if you call someone raka, you know, that, that you're also subject to judgment. And that was a term of utter contempt to say that someone was empty-headed, they were useless, they were worthless. And back then, a name was, uh, was equivalent to the essence of a person. So you're saying at this person's essence, they are worthless, they are nothing. And then he says, to do all of this, it's like you're, you're at risk of the fires of hell. And what the word he actually uses there is not Hades, which is the eternal hell, he uses the word Gehenna which is actually pointing to a physical place right outside the city. It was the fire pit. It was a trash pit where they would burn you know, all their trash, but they'd also burn the bodies of their enemies, and it was terrible, and you could see the smoke, and it smelled terrible. And he's essentially saying, if you let anger and wrath get a grip on your heart, it's basically like throwing your life on the trash pit. That's basically what you're doing. It is throwing it away. And, and, it's, and it's making you useless and worthless. It is a terrible thing to let in your heart. And the Christian tradition holds that wrath shows up three ways in our lives. There's three forms in which we tend to see it. It's, it's this. It's uh, too quickly, too much, too long. Too quickly, too much, too long. These are three forms of wrath that we tend to see. So too quickly is when you are quick to anger. You are quick-tempered. Right? And, and it, you're, it's fast. And that could be over a person, right? We, we all kind of have that person that just gets us quick-tempered. You know, we just lose our patience with them faster than anyone else. You might be really, really patient with everyone else, but this person, they can just say one thing, and you just automatically are just irritated and angry. Or it could be an issue, right? There, there could be a specific issue that just works you up. Someone mentions it, you read something about it, you see it on Facebook, and suddenly you are just mad. It could be politics, it could be anything, right? And, and so too quick is one way to measure, you know, because Jesus is saying, take note of what's going on in your heart. Because what's going on in your heart is just as important as whether you act on it or not. And so if you find yourself getting quick to anger, it's a go-to response for you, then that's something to pay attention to. The next one is too much. And this is when our anger and our response doesn't match up with whatever the trigger was. And we've all had that. Right, where suddenly we are overreacting to something. And even sometimes you can see yourself. It's like you're having an out-of-body experience. Like, I am overreacting to that, but I'm, I am fully committed to my overreaction. And often that's because there's a trigger issue, right? something that maybe you haven't resolved in your life, and it's like you're laying a trap for someone, and they step into it, and then you're free to just like lose it on them. Right? Or um, you know, it's just something that really, really gets you. And then the third one, the third one is too long. And this is when we have an unhealed wound, right? There's something that someone has hurt us, something happened, and maybe we've tried to get over it, and we've tried to forgive, and we've tried to let it go, but it just we just can't seem to be capable of doing it. 
And the more we hold on to it and we kind of nurse it and we think about it and we let it, let it take root, bitterness starts to take root in our life. And then what happens is we allow anger to get a grip on us. And anger suddenly becomes a habit of the heart. And if you find yourself falling into too quickly and too much, very often it's because there's something that you've held on for too long. Because anger suddenly becomes an appropriate way to respond. And, and so, and it's unforgiveness, really. Unforgiveness leads to wrath. And Andy Stanley says it like this. Show me an angry person, and I'll show you a hurt person. And I guarantee you that person was hurt because something was taken from them. Somebody owes them something, if nothing else, an apology. We all know folks whose anger can be verbalized in one of the following ways. You took my reputation. You stole my family. You took the best years of my life. You stole my first marriage. You robbed me of my teenage years. You robbed me of my purity. You owe me a raise. You owe me an opportunity to try. You owe me a second chance. You owe me affection. The root of anger is the perception that something has been taken and something is owed you. And here's the thing. When we feel like something is owed to us, what do we expect? We expect someone to pay it back, right? We expect payback. We want someone to pay. They are indebted to us. That's how debts are made right. It's the only fair thing. We deserve retribution because someone hurt me and they should be hurting as well. That's how we tend to handle things. But Jesus comes along once again and ups the ante and says, actually, you don't deserve retribution. This is how, this is how to handle it. He continues teaching the crowd and he says this. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give them your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. You see, when, when the Israelites first got the law and, it, and they were given proportionate retribution, that was a step in the right direction. It was a step in the right direction to stop the ever-escalating cycle of violence. But Jesus comes along and says, proportionate retribution isn't enough because it still relies on punishment and violence to make things right. And, and there's no redemption in that. It doesn't actually make anything right. It, it still keeps everyone hurt and wrong. And so he comes along and says, actually, it's not proportionate retribution. He is coming, and he's coming at what's known as the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence. Walter Wink was the first person to coin this phrase. And he says, from a very early age, we're all taught there's the good guy and there's the bad guy. And you resonate with the good guy, right? You're like the good guy. How many of you ever watched the movie and think, I'm just like the bad guy? You know, you don't. You, wa you watch the movie and you think, I'm like Captain America. I'm totally that guy, right? And then there's the bad guy. And we can put all of our anger and hurt and jealousy and everything else that we want to put on the bad guy. And the bad guy gets beat up and defeated, and we think, yeah, he got, he got what he deserves. And now the world is made right. But this is what, what Walter Wing says about the myth of redemptive violence. He says, in short, the myth of redemptive violence is the story of the victory of order over chaos by means of violence. Life is combat. Any form of order is preferable to chaos, according to this myth. Ours is neither a perfect nor perfectible world. It is a theater of perpetual conflict in which the prize goes to the strong. Peace through war, security through strength, these are the core convictions. And we are taught from an early age that violence is the best 
solution. That violence will make things better. Because, and this, this shows up with spanking, this shows up with hitting, this shows up with guns, where we begin to think, oh, we need violence to actually make the world work, to put chaos into order. And it can be through actions, but violence shows up in all sorts of ways. It can be through our words, shaming people, gossip, you know, working around others, undermining them. These are all ways in which we say, we keep coming back to, unless it hurts, people won't learn. Unless they pay, people won't learn. They won't stop. Andy Stanley says this. It's easy to believe that the only remedy for our anger is payback. After all, isn't that how you settle a debt? What other option is there? And even if there were some other way around the debt, that wouldn't be fair. People ought to pay what they owe. To cancel a debt is to let the guilty party off the hook. They need to pay. Otherwise, they'll probably turn around and hurt someone else again. And so we... We, at our core, if we're really honest, we believe that someone has to suffer in order to learn a lesson. That someone has to hurt back in order to learn a lesson. And that is the myth of redemptive violence. That violence can somehow redeem a situation. But that is not the way of Jesus. That is not what Jesus teaches. Richard Rohr says it like this. But there is no such thing as redemptive violence. Violence doesn't save it only destroys in both short and long term. Jesus replaced the myth of redemptive violence with the truth of redemptive suffering. He showed us on the cross how to hold the pain and let it transform us rather than pass it on to others around us. See, it started out, the ratio started out 10 to 1, 10 of yours to one of ours. And the Mosaic Law said, okay, rein this in 1 to 1. But Jesus changes the ratio and he says 0 to 1. 0 to 1. You don't hit back. That is not how we solve problems. Proportionate retribution does not leave room for redemption. It might feel fair, but it doesn't actually redeem the situation. He gives us a different picture for what, what it's supposed to look like. He says we should not resist an evildoer. And we start to go, well, what does that mean, Jesus? Does this mean like I'm just supposed to be a doormat, let people walk all over me and do whatever they want, not have boundaries, and people just get away with whatever they want? That's not the picture that he gives us. He gives us three examples of what this might look like. Because what is really known, what is often coined as, is provocative non-retaliation. Right? We go to proportionate retribution, or even sometimes we live in 10 to 1, you know, left to our own devices. But he gives us this picture of what's known as provocative non-retaliation. He gives us three pictures. The first one is if someone strikes you on the right cheek, offer them the other cheek. And so what would have happened here, if someone struck you on the right cheek, it would have been a backhanded hit. And that is a hit that you would give um, to an, an inferior. And it's meant to, to shame, it's a power play, and, and to demoralize the person who was hit. And when Jesus says, turn to them the other cheek, that's not just saying, well, just, you know, let them hit you again. What that does is it says, oh, you hit an inferior that way but I'm going to expose your violence. I'm going to expose the way what you are trying to do. I'm not going to let you dehumanize me. I'm going to offer you the other cheek because that's how an equal would hit someone. So I am declaring myself as your equal, and I am forcing you to, to come face to face with how you are treating me, and I refuse to absorb the shame and humiliation and the dehumanization that you are putting onto me. So this is this provocative um, 
response that says, you have to now look at yourself. Yes, I might be open to more violence, but you would have to actually pay attention to what it is that you're doing. It's refusing to let that person have power over you. The second image he gives is to give your coat. If you're, someone takes you to court to, to take your shirt, give them your coat as well. And back then, they would have had people had like basically two pieces of clothing. They had a, a shirt, which was a long tunic, which was their everyday um, outfit. And then they had a coat, which would function both as like keeping them warm, but often their blanket, their pillow for carrying things. And what, so the picture that Jesus is giving is someone owes a debt, and they can't pay it. And the only thing they own is literally the clothes on their back, right? So they're being taken to court for the clothes on their back, and this person's trying to take their shirt. And what he's saying is when you give them your coat, you are exposing their greed and the violation of the law that they're going through. Because in Exodus, it says this, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal, charge no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, Return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So Jesus isn't just saying, well, I'll just give in and give them give everything. He's saying, no, if someone, if someone is doing wrong to you, then go. don't resist the demand. Exceed it so that they have to come face to face with what they are actually doing, with what, what they, the choices that they are making. And the third image he gives is this, if you're forced to go one mile, choose to go the second mile. And so Israel was part of, um, they had a Roman occupying force. And so Roman soldiers could legally just come along and make anyone carry their equipment. And th that person had no warning, they had no say, and they didn't get any compensation, right? So they had to walk a mile with all of this equipment. And that, that was the legal limit, right? To, to, now, doesn't mean that they always abided by it, but it wasn't because the equipment was so heavy and the Roman soldiers like, oh, I just need a break. It was a power play. It was a reminder that we are in charge of you. It was, again, meant to demoralize, to dehumanize, to take power away. And Jesus says, you can't choose the first mile, but you sure can choose the second mile. And when you choose the second mile, you're saying, you don't have power over me. You are not my occupying force. I get to choose. And so all three of these are this provocative non-retaliation. They are provocative because they don't provoke more retaliation, right? It's not this one for one, 10 for one that you, I hit and then you hit back and then, you, then I hit you back and it just gets worse and worse and worse. What it provokes is actually the opportunity for redemption. It allows the opportunity for redemption, for that other person to stop and reflect and say, what am I actually doing? How am I actually behaving? Because in all of these instances, it's really easy to take on a victim mentality. Because all three are done to you. There's not choice there. There's power in it. And someone is trying to do something to you, to take, take your humanity away, to take your power away, to demoralize you and, and, and grind you down. These are all unjust things. But here's the thing with a victim mentality. When we get stuck in a victim mentality, it becomes much easier to hit back because then we think we're claiming power. This, again, Andy Stanley, he talks about it like this, and I think it's really, really helpful. He says, hurt, rejection, criticism, stuff not going our way, all these things leave us feeling like victims. And victims are powerless. 
Victims have no control over their lives. Victims are at the mercy of others. Victims can only react. Victims are held prisoner by circumstances beyond their control. It's these feelings of victimization that fuel our justifications and excuses. Victims don't want to be proactive about changing. They want to be proactive about making sure the person who hurts them, who hurt them, pays. See, Jesus challenges us to say, you are not powerless. Even when someone comes along and tries to take your power from you and tries to grind you down and mistreats you, you have the power to choose how you respond. You are not powerless. But when we feel powerless, that's when we start to give ourselves the justification and the excuse to let wrath and anger, because remember, wrath is not uncontrolled rage. Wrath is anger that seeks to hurt, anger that seeks to hit back, anger that seeks to punish, anger that's seeking payback. Right? And so all of these provoke the opportunity for the other person to reflect on what they're doing. Because Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. But it doesn't mean just lay down and take it. That's not what Jesus is saying. That word resist is a military term. And it means don't come armed as opposition. And N.T. Wright, he, he translates it really well. He says, do not use violence to resist evil. Don't be so ready to respond with violence when you are slighted. And again, violence can be physical violence, but more often we're violent in our words and our thoughts and our actions. Right? We, we might not be brawling people out in public, but we, we definitely want to make people pay because that's how we think things are made right. You pay because you owe me something. So ultimately, Jesus says, you don't, you don't have to be dehumanized. You don't have to dehumanize the other person. Really what he's saying is, don't fight fire with fire. Don't fight fire with fire. That doesn't put a fire out. Fight fire with water, right? Go the third way. Find the other way. Find a way to actually stop it. You know, the one-to-one -one stopped the ever-increasing cycle, but didn't stop this wrath and retribution. And he's saying, actually put an end to it. Where, where redemption is possible. Because when we're angry, if we're really honest, we're not thinking about how to redeem the other person. We're not thinking, what would really help that person and, and make them a better person? We think, no, you owe me. You owe me and you need to pay. And Jesus is saying that's not how it works. And so what does this look like? What does this look like to not fight fire with fire, but to fight fire with water? What does that look like in our lives? So I'm going to give you a really small example for my life. So I studied abroad in New Zealand, and when I lived there, I had six roommates, and we all shared this one flat, and I had the worst roommates on the face of the planet. They were terrible. I mean, they were just terrible. Like, they trashed the place. Our house became a party house. There'd just be parties all the time, and you'd come in, and you're like, why? Are, it just smells like booze in here. It was just awful. They were terrible, terrible roommates, and I wasn't into the party scene. So one weekend, I knew they were going to have a big party, and so they at least had the courtesy to let me know that weekend, and so I went to go stay with my friend, and we, I slept over there, and then towards the middle of the day, we were like, okay, it's probably all cleared out by now, so we'll go home. We went back to my house to make lunch, and we walked in, and the place is trashed, and we get into the kitchen, and I'm not kidding, literally, every single dish in every single pot and pan is totally dirty and everywhere, and 
my friend looked at me, she goes, you literally have the worst roommates in the world. I'm like, I know, they're terrible. And so she, she looks at this and is like, they are so disrespectful because none of them are like, oh, let's clean this up. You know, they'd leave it there for days. And, uh, and she's like, we could go somewhere else. So she's like, or you could throw it all away. You could throw away every plate and every cup and every pot. That would teach them a lesson. And there was a big part of me that's like, yeah, we should do that. We should throw that all away. How do you think that would have ended? They wouldn't have come down and be like, this was totally reasonable. Thank you for throwing all our dishes away. We'll stop doing that now, right? Like, that's a 10 to 1. It's going to escalate more. And, you know, I was kind of fuming about it. And then I, this thought came into my mind. I said, well, I guess if Jesus could wash his disciples' feet, I can probably wash my roommate's dishes. And so instead of throwing them all away, my friend and I decided we were going to wash it all. We are just going to clean it all. And as we were doing it, you know, at first we were like, these guys are the worst. Like, what did they, li how did they literally do this during, a what were they doing? And, but as we're watching it, it started to change my heart. And it almost kind of became fun because we're like, I wonder what they're going to say when they come down. And as we came, as we were finishing up, they came down, they stumbled down the stairs and they're all hung over and, you know, and, and they're, they come into the kitchen and they literally just like, What? And they, did, they didn't know how to respond. Like, they kept coming, like, walking back and forth. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do because they got caught. What happened was they had to come face to face with their own disrespect, their, the, the, their own way of operating in the world. And, it, and in many ways, it extinguished the opposition. Now, I would love to say from that moment on, they became great roommates. They turned their life around. They came to know Jesus. and It was all great. That did not happen. But it didn't get worse. It didn't get worse. It didn't get worse from my end. It didn't get worse from their end. And, and while it might not have changed their, the, the way that they live, it changed the way that I lived. Because in that moment, I realized, I don't want to be someone who fights fire with fire. That is not how Jesus has called me to live. Jesus has called me to live as someone who fights fire with water. Because that stands out in this world. That is a different way of living. Because that is how Jesus lived. If you look at the life of Jesus, he never once retaliates against his enemies. He doesn't, when they, when they are in the wrong, he doesn't shame them. He doesn't yell at them. He does what is right consistently. And when he does what is right, it consistently exposes that they do not do what is right. And that, that is how we're called to live. Because the, the, the virtue that gets out of whack when it comes to wrath, you know, we've been talking about this, that there's a virtue for each side of these seven deadly sins. The virtue that gets out of whack is the virtue of forgiveness. And we are told from Jesus that we are to forgive others as we have been forgiven. Because, see, we have been forgiven in a way that we didn't get what we deserved. Right? We, don't, we don't get what we deserve. We get something that is unearned. And Jesus says, you have been forgiven. You have been set free. I didn't, you don't have to pay back the way that you have been wronged, and you are to live that same way in the world. You are called to live as someone who is forgiven, and so therefore forgives. That's how we're called to be. We're supposed to model who Jesus is. And so I, I skipped this verse a little bit ago, I think, but uh, I want to I come back to it. Sorry, Danielle, I'm going to make you jump back. Um, but there's a verse in Romans did I skip? I don't even know. I'm, see, you can tell I'm sick. I'm like, I'm losing my mind up here. Yeah, there's a verse in Romans. Paul actually tells us how to live, and it says this. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. 
Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge and will pay them back. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And what is so remarkable about who says this, this is the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is one of our very first leaders in the church. And before Paul met Jesus, Paul used violence to, to solve problems. Paul had um, orders to go lock people up. He witnessed murders. He, he, con he condoned them. And he used violence to get his way. He came to know Jesus, and he never once used violence again. He never once resorted to it again. So when he says these words, he means them. This is how we're supposed to live as followers of Jesus. We are called not to pay back evil for evil. We don't do one for one. We are called to live zero to one. That's the ratio that we live by because we're called to leave room for redemption. We're not called to go about administering justice. And so what do we do? How do we actually practically respond to wrath? If we're sitting here going, yeah, I, I know that I can get angry too quickly, I can get angry too much, or I've definitely been angry for too long. Anger's become a habit of the heart. How, how do I move forward? So I'm going to give us two practical ways. The first one is really a good tool for too quickly, too much. And if you find yourself easily provoked, or you're just irritated all the time, or you're lashing out with people, one of the things that I would recommend you to do is keep an anger journal for a week. And this doesn't mean, I mean, some of you, I don't mean like reflective journal of writing pages and pages. I literally mean keep an account. So it can be on your phone, it can be a notebook, it can just be a piece of paper that you keep with you. And just write down every time you feel angry, what it was that made you angry, and what you wanted to do, right? Like, I wanted to write a mean, nasty post on Facebook, or I wanted to call that person up or say this snappy thing to them, or whatever that is. Just stop yourself and take note. And at the end of the week, come back and look at it. You know, rather than reacting out of your anger, take a look and see what is it that's setting me off, right? What, and how might I then respond? Because that gives you something to pray about. It gives you something to bring to God and start to have a conversation to say, God, I see this wrath in my life. So part of it is paying attention. But what do we do with too long? Because really, most of the time, too quickly and too much is because there's something that is held for too long. We don't actually know how to get past it. And the reason why we hold on to something too long is because we have legitimately been hurt. There's a legitimate hurt there. Something has been taken from us. There is a debt that is owed, but here's the thing. It's a debt that can never actually be repaid. It's a debt that can never actually be repaid. Andy Stanley says it like this. You can't buy back a missing relationship. You can't pay back a reputation. There's no way to make up for years of criticism and neglect. How does someone give you back your innocence, your purity? These debts cannot be repaid. The best thing to do is cancel them. The truth is, nothing can make up for the past. There's an emotional element involved in hurt that cannot be compensated through apologies, promises, or financial restitution. An apology does not erase experience. To cling to our hurt while waiting to be repaid is to allow the seeds of bitterness to take root and grow. And so, 
when we have held on to something too long, and it's a debt that we desperately wish could be repaid, but the reality is it can never be repaid, the best thing to do is to forgive. But here's the thing. Most of us don't actually know how to forgive. There's a process to forgive because forgiving isn't just going, okay, no big deal. I'm over it. You've tried that and it doesn't work, right? It keeps coming back. So Andy Stanley actually gives a four-step process of forgiveness. I'm going to give you those four steps. The first one is to identify who you are angry with, to actually name them. You know, maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a friend from the past. Some of the ways to think about it is who do you secretly wish to see fail? And if you're honest about it, there's people that you're like, I just, you know, I kind of rejoice inside when I see that things aren't going well for them. Or who do you wish you'd never see again? You know, who, keep, who do you keep having imaginary conversations with when you're driving in the car and you think, yeah, I would say that if I saw them, right? That's who you need to forgive, right? If that person keeps coming up, that's who you need. Name them, identify them. And then the second step is to determine what they owe you. This is not about general forgiveness. I generally forgive them. General forgiveness does not cover up and heal specific hurts. So naming specifically, what did they, not just, not just what did they owe you, what did they take from you? What do you feel was taken from you? Maybe it was your reputation, maybe it was an opportunity, maybe it was happiness, maybe it was a relationship, whatever that is. And then along with that, name what, do you, what would you want to be paid back to you? Is it money? Is it an apology? Is it a job? Is it a family member? Is it, what is it? You know, what, what's the thing that you actually, if you stopped and said, they owe me this and this is what I want. This is what I want to, to feel better. Whether, whether you're gonna get it or not, that's not the point. But to actually name, what did they take and what is it that I'm, that I'm holding out for? And then the third step to forgive is to cancel the debt. Is to cancel the debt. And this can look like a silent decision, you know, where you actually write it, you know, you write it down and you say, I forgive them. But more often than not, we need a physical, symbolic action. And I know for my life, my life, some of the times this has been writing a letter to that person. I'd never mailed it, you know, but writing the letter. And sometimes I wrote the letter and then I burned it. You know, um, there, sometimes I've, I've had symbolic um, figures in, that help me remember, like, this, this is what hurt and this is who I'm trying to forgive. Sometimes I just write their name on the top of a page and I'm praying through that. One time, you know, there was something that really, really hurt me and I came across this verse of how I wanted to respond. So I had a friend who's just an amazing artist write this verse out in this artistic way and I put it on my fridge. And so every day I would read that to remind myself this is how I want to respond to this situation. But whatever it is, Find a way for yourself to cancel the debt. You don't have to let them know about that. That's more often going to come off as an accusation. Say, just by the way, I want you to know that I'm forgiving you for all these terrible things you've done to me. They don't, it's not good. That's going to be a one for one, 10 for one. Like, that's, it's a zero for one ratio that we're going for. We don't hit back. And so, whatever that is for you to physically work through canceling that debt. And then the fourth one, and this is, I think, the hardest one, is called dismiss the case. Because what's inevitably going to happen is feelings don't always follow a decision, right? Feelings are often the last 
thing to change. And what's going to happen is you'll go, I've gone through steps one through three. And I know as I was putting this together, I thought, oh man, I'm guilty of four over and over and over again. I've gone through steps one through three with someone who really hurt me, especially in my younger years. And, but what happens is something, they say something, maybe they're still in your life. They say something and all, all that hurt comes back up or you see something and you're reminded of all that hurt. And suddenly you start relitigating the case, right? And you start and now they're guilty all over again, and you're, you're back, they're back in debt to you. And so what we really need to do is when we are triggered, either by that person or by something else, you can feel your feelings. You know, it's not, it's not like just deny them or dismiss them. But then you say, they don't owe me. They don't owe me. I have canceled that debt. Feelings are often the last thing to come around. If you're really honest, whatever it is that you've been holding on too long, it's a debt that can't actually be repaid, right? It's something that nothing's actually going to make it better. There's nothing that that person can actually do to give you back what was taken. But holding on to a debt for too long creates the habit of anger in our own heart. And we start to get angry too quickly and too much. And then we hold on to more things for too long. And so what Jesus says is, rather than letting anger be the habit of your heart, let forgiveness be the habit of your heart. To practice forgiveness over and over and over again because it offers retribution, it offers redemption to the other person, but it, more than anything, it offers redemption for you. It sets you free. And so let us be people who examine our hearts and not let anger reside there, but let forgiveness reside there. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that you have forgiven us. Thank you that you have given us unearned favor and grace and mercy. And Lord, help us to be forgiven people who are forgiving people. Lord, for those of us who need to take an examination of our heart and see whether wrath has become a habit of our heart, would you give us the courage to do that? Would you help us to be people who reflect you in the world, Lord, who don't, who don't live by proportionate retribution, but instead provocative non-retaliation? Help us to reflect you, Jesus, in all that we say we do. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, I think forgiveness takes courage. I think for forgiveness is hard work, and we can only do it with the help of God. And so we're going to sing a song. We're going to stand up. I'm going to invite you to stand right now, and we're going to respond with a song about asking God to give us courage and faith to live the way that he wants us to live.